hppodcraft.com. One midsummer night, a farmer's boy living about 10 miles from the city of Cincinnati was following a bridle path through a dense and dark forest. He had lost himself while searching for some missing cows and near midnight was a long way from home in a part of the country with which he was unfamiliar. The night was clear, but in the woods it was exceedingly dark. It was more by the sense of touch than by that of sight that the lad kept the path. He could not indeed very easily go astray. The undergrowth on both sides was so thick as to be almost impenetrable. He had gone into the forest a mile or more when he was surprised to see a feeble gleam of light shining through the foliage skirting the path on his left. The sight of it startled him and set his heart beating audibly. The old breed house is somewhere about here, he said to himself. This must be the other end of the path which we reach it by from our side. Ugh, what should a light be doing there? That was the first few paragraphs of The Suitable Surroundings by Ambrose Bierce. A walk through the woods, a possibly haunted house, and we're going to talk about it here at the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you are joining us at hppodcraft.com. Our reader this week was once again Mr. C.S. Humble. He read for us on Count Magnus, and we wanted to have him back right away because he is awesome. Yeah, lots of good spookiness in that voice, and I thought, we got to get him on a free show, which this is this week. Yeah, free. He wanted me to let folks know he's also available for voiceover work, so if you dig what you hear on the show, write us a note, and we'll put you in touch with CS. Speaking of touch, you know what I like to touch, Chris? Uh... <laughs> Here, I'll cut you off before you answer that. I like to touch playing cards. Oh, okay, good. Yes, of course you do, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you said that, because this week, one of our advertisers is the Cthulhu Playing Cards Game. It's a Kickstarter, and we'll link out to it in the show notes. Basically, it's a card game based on the mythos. When you pledge, uh, you can get a full deck of cards with drawings of Lovecraft characters and creatures on them designed by Anita Mejia. And there's also this really amazing Cthulhu Idol, which is a container for the cards. And there are these tokens, which are like poker chips, and they're called sanity chips. And it's a actual game that you can play with regular cards, or you can just use them as playing cards for poker or what, what have you. And the illustrations aren't too scary, actually. They're really cool. But if you want to play with the family, it's not going to freak the kids out or anything like that, which is good because I play poker over at the park here with a group of kids. And I've been bringing my crime scene photo card deck over what? there to play with them. This seems way more appropriate than that. None of that's appropriate. <laughs> I like to touch cards. That was the whole point of that story. Right. Well, you know what I like to touch? Uh, books. Books, Pfeiffer. Books. Oh, books. Books. <laughs> well, that's good. That's interesting that you say that. Because we are sponsored this week by a fantastic publishing company, Fidogan and Bremer Books. And I'm really excited about that because, you know, I like my Kindle and I like e-text and I like my iPad and all that stuff. But these guys make some mother books. You know what I mean? Like you have date night with these books. You get it out, you, you open it up, you have a glass of wine. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. Right now, Fadogan and Bremer are celebrating their 30th hardcover edition since 1989. It's an awesome anthology by editor Stephen Jones called Weirder Shadows Over Innsmouth. This is the last of the series of the three Shadows Over Innsmouth books based on, of course, Lovecraft Story. That's right. In this book, you've got some amazing authors, Ramsey Campbell, Brian Lumley, uh, Caitlin Kiernan, Lovecraft himself, and Kim Newman, who, who wrote this story that I really, really liked, which was called uh, Richard Riddle, Boy Detective, in the Case of the French Spy, which uh, <laughs> was real. it's written kind of like a Nancy Drew or Hardy Boy sort of yeah. thing. And it, it's well written, and the style's great, and it's a whole take on mythos stuff. And uh, 
That was just one of the gems in that book. Yeah, there's a lot of great stories in Weirder Shadows Over Innsmouth. I, I read um, the last story in it is a Brian Lumley story. I thought it was so cool because it's actually a post-apocalyptic kind of thing where everything that could have happened in Lovecraft's universe happened. You know, so yeah. so like the great old ones have come and they've ravaged the planet and you've got a few humans hanging around trying to deal with the new strange architecture on the planet. And uh, man, yeah. I just thought it was such a cool idea. And I've always wondered what that would look like. And I love Lumley's work. So uh, I was really glad to get the, the PDF of this, although it's yeah. the physical books that you are going to want to buy because Fidogan and Bremer produced what you call library binding hardcovers, just like Arkham House used to do. They use low acid paper, sewn signatures, and basically what that means is that these are old school solid books, which are still going to be on shelves in a hundred years because you know way after glue bindings and cheaper pulp papers are crumbling into dust, this stuff will still be hanging around. They're solid. And they'll probably still be here after humanity has crumbled, like in Lumley's story. Right. These things are so sturdy that the aliens are going to look at them and they're going to say, this is the real history of Earth. Yeah. And I think that if there's three books, there's uh, Shadows Over Innsmouth, Weird Shadows Over Innsmouth, and Weirder Shadows Over Innsmouth. So if you get all three of these right. books, it kind of charts a, a long story, starting with Lovecraft's story and going through other things that may have happened before and after it. So check out the series. It's all it's all good stuff. We're going to put a link up in our show notes. Please, if you have a chance, go check it out. Pick up some of those excellent books. Yeah. Now, those are books. The story that we're covering today, Ambrose Bierce's story, The Suitable Surroundings, actually appeared first in a newspaper. I didn't know that. Well, he, you know, he wrote a lot for the San Francisco Examiner, which was a Hearst paper. He was associated with Hearst. And this story was later included in an anthology Bierce has called Tales of Soldiers and Civilians. But originally it appeared in the San Francisco Examiner on July 14th. 1889. Uh, that date you'll see as we go through this story is kind of significant. That excerpt you heard at the beginning was the first chapter, The Night. Basically, it's about a kid walking through the woods. He sees a light in a house that he knows is unoccupied, like a you know scary ghost house that nobody's living in. They belong to somebody named Breed. That was the last name. B-R-E-E-D. Yeah, the old Breed house. The house is supposed to be haunted. Mm. It's got old windows. It's rotting. It's falling apart. Uh, Things have been broken because kids have been throwing rocks at the windows, you know, to show how tough they are and how brave, right? you know, that they'll go up to the house and throw. And that's something, you know, kids, I think, still do these days, you know, when there's old abandoned buildings. I mean, I see all the windows knocked out and flipping kids. Oh, yeah, of course. Because And I think it's, you know, there was a haunted house like this in the middle toe of the right foot as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there's a line in this story where it says everybody knows it was a haunted house. And then Bierce writes, possibly it was not. But even the hardiest skeptic could not deny that it was deserted, which in rural regions is much the same thing. So anybody from a rural place knows there were deserted houses around that were definitely haunted. And I think that's a formative experience for all kids. There's always that house that everybody says that's haunted and you don't want to walk by yeah. it. And and it's not necessarily rural either. Like here in uh, L.A., I mean, there's a house down the street here. Well, this is actually I mean, there was like a shooting in my neighborhood. Sure. Not that long ago where a guy killed his his brother and his father and then went on a rampage over to the college but he burned the house down as he left there's no barricades around it the house is just still standing there now the difference between a city and a rural area is that it'll probably get bulldozed at some point to make room yeah but for right now it's just there shelled out burnt there's just stuff all over the place and this halloween when kids were out trick-or-treating i saw a bunch of them walking by it and like nudging each other right and like to, to get closer to the house you know what i mean so it's like that yeah. and here in the city you still have that haunted house phenomena that's so it's so much a part of being young 
Absolutely. And this boy in the story, he was one of the boys that actually did those types of things. He was one of the ones that threw the rocks through the windows and broke them and stuff. Mm -hmm. He's worried that something bad's going to happen that might be some kind of punishment. Because he was one of the kids that threw the rocks. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I felt that way before when I was, you know, like John Huffman talked me in a wreck in a tree house. I know. I remember that story. <laughs> but this kid, uh, he's especially tough, right? Oh, yeah, he's got frontiersman's blood, so he's powerful. Yeah. You know, he's like uh, Defago. You know, he's going to get out there and he's going to run. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, so he keeps going straight to the house to check out the light because curiosity is more. I think there's a phrase he uses, he talks about being fueled by terror yeah. to go check it out, which is a really interesting idea. As he was going by, he looked in the blank window space and saw a strange and terrifying sight the figure of a man seated in the center of the room at a table upon which lay some loose sheets of paper. The elbows rested on the table, the hands supported the head, which was uncovered. On each side the fingers were pushed into the hair, the face showing dead yellow in the light of a single candle a little to one side. The flame illuminated that side of the face, the other was in deep shadow. The man's eyes were fixed upon the blank window space with a stare in which an older and cooler observer might have discerned something of apprehension, but which seemed to the lad altogether soulless. He believed the man to be dead. The situation was horrible, but not without its fascination. The boy stopped to note it all. He was weak, faint and trembling. He could feel the blood forsaking his face. Nevertheless, he set his teeth and resolutely advanced to the house. He had no conscious intention. It was the mere courage of terror. He thrust his white face forward into the illuminated opening. At that instant, a strange, harsh cry, a shriek, broke upon the silence of the night. The note of a screech owl. The man sprang to his feet, overturning the table and extinguishing the candle. The boy took to his heels. That's the end of that chapter. Uh, Bierce, once again, is going to do a time jump, like he did middle toe of the right foot. So this next chapter is called The Day Before. Yeah, so it's obviously it's happening the, the day before. And we go to this trolley car, presumably in San Francisco, and there's a guy named Marsh who's reading the newspaper when another guy, Colston, touches his shoulder. Marsh was actually reading a story that Colston wrote, and he says, hey, Colston, you're, you're always saying that I'm just polite when I tell you your stories are good, but I was so absorbed in this story that I didn't even notice you were there until you touched my shoulder. Yeah, and that actually, it seems to make Colston angry. Yeah, that's kind of a strange reaction because I would be like, oh, wow, that's great. Yeah, thank you for reading my story. But <laughs> thank you. basically, he's just saying, look, that's a ghost story. It says right there under the title in the paper that it's a ghost story. So you're not supposed to be reading it while you're going about your business in the morning on a streetcar. You need to be in a good, spooky environment. We talked about this on the uh, roundtable earlier this week, yeah. which, mm -hmm. by the way, folks should check out. If you haven't yet, uh, we'll link out to it in our show notes. But we did a roundtable on mainstreaming Cthulhu. Oh, well, I want to thank those guys, Jennifer and Steven. We just had two guests on the roundtable, and they were outstanding and so wonderful to talk to and new friends. They were really great. So go check that out. We had talked about how Lovecraft has become more commonplace. And Jennifer's point was, look, if you still want to enjoy these stories, just get the right atmosphere going and you'll still be yeah. able to do it and that's basically what this colston character is saying you know this isn't news that you're reading you don't need to read it as soon as it comes out it's, i'm not reporting on anything that just happened it's a ghost story so right. you need to in order to feel the effect you need to create the right kind of atmosphere 
when you read it. It gets very specific with them too. He says, a horror story should be read alone at night by the light of a single mm-hmm. candle, which I don't, man, have you tried to read by a single candle? You have to get pretty close to it's it. It's pretty hard to do and it hurts your eyes. He says that he's got this manuscript in his pocket that if Marsh wants to read it, he should take it, go to this deserted house that he knows about in the woods. And if he reads it, it will kill him with fear. <laughs> and when Marsh hears this, he gets angry. He's like, what? That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. All right. Yeah. You, you let me know about this place. You tell me where it is. I'll go there. I'll read this manuscript and you come and check on me. And when I'm done, uh, I'll be there and I'll just kick your, I'll kick you out of the house yeah. is what he says, which it seems weird. Like, uh, you know, beat his ass or something. <laughs> well, I, I think he's mad and I'd be kind of mad too. Like, if I ran into a writer and said, hey, I was just reading your story and it's fantastic. And they said, you're reading it wrong. <laughs> hey, I'm sorry. <laughs> Why didn't he just say, you know what would, you know what would be best? You should read that at night. It tends to make it a little creepier. He could have been a little more congenial about it. I mean, I think you should be appreciative when somebody's uh, looking at your material. Heck yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and this is sort of a strange interaction in this because Coulson wants him to, to die from fear. Well, yeah, it's pretty strange, yeah, that he's saying I've got a – well, it seems like it's some just some hyperbole. Like I've got a manuscript. If you read it in that setting – and, of course, he's saying I do know such a place. There's an old deserted house in the middle of the woods. I'll take you out there and you read this manuscript and it'll just kill you. You'll be so scared. But maybe he really literally means it. I, I, he must not actually literally mean that it's going to kill him, but – as we read the story, yeah, <laughs> that's what that's what. Yeah, happens. we get into the next so, chapter. It's called the day after. So this is very similar to Middle Toe, the Right Foot. You know, where they introduce the house and they jump yeah. back to what led them up to there. And now we're going to look at the consequences. And the boy from the first chapter, he's rounded up three men the next day, and he's mm-hmm. come out to the old breed house where he says, "Hey, I saw a guy out here in the house." They think the kids just making yeah. stuff up, telling a yarn, you know, and trying to maybe pull a trick on him or something like that. But he eventually gets them to come out to the house and they find a, a, a dead body, dead body of the guy that was reading the story. It lay partly on one side with the forearm beneath it, the cheek on the floor. The eyes were wide open. The stare was not an agreeable thing to encounter. The lower jaw had fallen, a little pool of saliva had collected beneath the mouth, an overthrown table, a partly burned candle, a chair and some paper with writing on it were all else that the room contained. In that paragraph it says, uh, you know, all of the men suddenly, they turn and tossle the kid's hair because they realize that he was right the whole time and it says it was, it's the proudest moment of the boy's life. I can imagine, you know? Sure, yeah. Having some adults think you're full of it and then boom, here's the evidence. They look at what the dead man was reading and it's a manuscript. Obviously, it's the one that Coulson had given him and it says... Before committing the act, which rightly or wrongly I have resolved on, I, James R. Coulson, deem it my duty as a journalist to make a statement to the public. My name is, I believe, tolerably well known to the people as a writer of tragic tales. But the somberest imagination never conceived anything so tragic as to my own life and history. Not in incident, my life has been destitute of adventure and action, but my mental career has been lurid with experiences such as kill and damn. I shall not recount them here. Some of them are written and ready for publication elsewhere. The object of these lines is to explain to whomsoever may be interested that my death is voluntary, my own act. I shall die at 12 o'clock on the night of the 15th of July, a significant anniversary to me, for it was on that day and at that hour 
that my friend in time and eternity, Charles Breed, performed his vow to me by the same act which his fidelity to our pledge now entails upon me. He took his life in his little house in the Copeton Woods. There was the customary verdict of temporary insanity. Had I testified at that inquest, had I told all I knew, they would have called me mad. So there's some sort of suicide pact, and he says he's going to leave this on the body to be given to the coroner. Yeah, on his own body when he commits suicide. Right? I got to admit, I so I was totally on board with the story and following everything, but that was the first time I got a little confused about what was going on. Yeah, because I, I was I thought it was, like, was it on Marsha's body? I'm a little confused here, and I had to kind of reread it. And I go, oh, wait, no, this is in the letter. It was meant to be on Colson's body initially, but the PS explains what happened. Willard Marsh... On this, the fatal 15th of July, I hand you this manuscript to be opened and read under the conditions agreed upon and at the place which I designated. I forgo my intention to keep it on my body to explain the matter of my death, which is not important. It will serve to explain the matter of yours. I am to call for you during the night to receive assurance that you will have read the manuscript. You know me well enough to expect me. But, my friend, it will be after... 12 o'clock. May God have mercy on our souls. Okay. That's confusing to me. <laughs> I, I don't quite understand. So he's under some kind of supernatural compulsion to commit suicide, and by giving giving Marsh this letter, sacrificing him will make it so he doesn't die? I don't know. But then know. again, he's, he says later on, my manner of death. No, so he still plans to die. He's not doing a swap. I guess he just decided to include... Did Marsh make him so mad because he was reading a story on the train car that he's decided to include him in the suicide pact somehow? I'm not really sure. I mean, the whole fact that there was a suicide pact, I have to admit, wasn't clear to me either at, well, at first. Because this sentence where he says that we heard, Charles Breed performed his vow to me by the same act which his fidelity to our pledge now entails upon me. It took me a while to decode that sentence to understand, okay, that guy committed suicide, now it's my turn. Okay, well, why, why, one guy is reading the manuscript. Where they that they found mm -hmm. next to the body, and then one of the other men that the boy has brought to this place lights the candle, grabs the manuscript, and he burns it. it. Says the man is the son-in-law of Charles Breed, the man who owned the house and committed suicide in it. So I guess he doesn't want people to know that his father-in-law was in a suicide pact. Okay, but then at the end of the story, there's this there's this newspaper clipping that makes this a little crazier. Yesterday, the commissioners of lunacy committed to the asylum, Mr. James R. Colston a writer of some local reputation connected with the messenger. It will be remembered that on the evening of the 15th, Mr. Colston was given into custody by one of his fellow lodgers in the Bain House, who had observed him acting very suspiciously, baring his throat and wetting a razor, occasionally trying its edge by actually cutting through the skin of his arm, etc. On being handed over to the police, the unfortunate man made a desperate resistance and has ever since been so violent that it has been necessary to keep him in a straitjacket. Most of our esteemed contemporaries, other writers, are still at large. And that's the end of the story. Yeah, that is a weird tale. It definitely is. I felt like it was almost an editorial, mm -hmm. right? In, in a sense where Bierce was saying, folks, I know I published in the newspaper, but stop reading it over breakfast. If, I'm, if it's a ghost story I've written, read it in the right circumstances. But this is a strange way... To say it, and it's it's a fairly convoluted, Coulson was going to kill himself as well. Mm -hmm. 
and somebody caught him doing it because he was being super obvious about the fact that he was going to kill himself. And then now he's institutionalized and riding away in some sanitarium. Did he know that Marsh was going to die? And what did he die from? Because it wasn't that scary. I, I mean, we just read what he wrote. It's it's not scary at all. Yeah. <laughs> and and is it just that the mood is that scary? Like reading something, anything by one candle at night in a scary house will scare you to death? Man, I don't know exactly. I was reading this book. It was called Ambrose Bierce's Civilians and Soldiers in Context, a Critical Study, because that's where this story appeared. Right. Mm-hmm. The author had said, um, Donald T. Bloom wrote this book, and he, he was saying in The Examiner, they actually published a lot of ghost stories as real accounts. You know, the newspapers had to satisfy all different types of audiences at, at that sure. time. It wasn't just the news. They had all sorts of other different features. So they they did almost inquirer kind of things where they'd say, hey, this person saw a ghost in this house, and and they would have all sorts of lurid details for the people who actually believed that stuff. But they were very fair and balanced in that they'd also go, of course, this could have been X, Y, and Z to sort of satisfy the skeptics as well. Sure. And so when Bierce would write these things, sometimes he would mimic that style in a way. And I think maybe what's going on here is there was a perfectly logical reason why Marsh died because he was in the middle of reading the story, which apparently was far scarier to him than to you. <laughs> and then that kid showed up and there was the hoot of the owl and all of that commotion. He thought it was Colston coming for him. And so he had a heart attack and he died. Right. But the fact that after that, we learned that Colston actually was crazy, actually was in the suicide pack and actually intended to fulfill that. Right. This wasn't just some because I could see uh-huh. he would write a manuscript like this to try to scare Marsh. But this actually was happening means that Colston did believe that after he killed himself, he would be able to go out there to the woods and scare Marsh. Lends a sort of other aspect to it where maybe this was all real and it's it's bizarre. Colston didn't kill himself, so it didn't work out for him. Here's what I think happened. I think that Colston met Marsh on the train. He was really angry. Colston's whole intention was to always kill himself with that manuscript in his pocket. Sure. When he sees Marsh not not reading it in the suitable surroundings, it makes him so mad. He decides he's going to pass that manuscript on to Marsh and have him go read it out in the woods. I, well, I was curious about when he wrote this P.S. I assume, well, he had to do it before he gave him the paper. Yeah. So, like, that would be the the very end of it. Would He would read that and go, huh? <laughs> Did he say, hold on one second, turn around and just write it right there in front of him before he handed it over to him? Or when did it well, happen? I, I mean, I thought that they met before, and this is in my head, they met like later that day because he had to show him where the house was. Well, so he just thought this would be an especially scary story for Marsh to read and that it would chill Marsh even more when he found out that he was had committed suicide. So maybe that was just what he wanted to do. Or he really believed that he would be a ghost. And he could come back as a ghost or a zombie and, and scare him for not reading the story the way he wanted him yeah, to Yeah, I don't it. know. <laughs> but there's a lot of Beers' personality in here. And also keep in mind that this story was published on the day that it's supposed to have occurred in the story. Mm-hmm. So I think he was trying to make the reader feel like they were a part of it as well. Right. Now, the last sentence of it when it was published in The Examiner was after they say that it was necessary to keep him in a straitjacket. The sentence was, it is thought that his malady is due to grief and excitement caused by the recent mysterious death of his friend, William Marsh. When he put it in Soldiers and Civilians, he changed it to most of our esteemed contemporaries. Other writers are still at large. What do you think that means? Well, it could be. Well, my first thought is that this was a suicide pact with writers. Uh-huh. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. Maybe this is a dig on writers. Yeah. When he says the esteemed contemporaries, other writers are still at large. So... It's just saying that writers are the crazy kind of people that would get into suicide packs and 
try and scare people to yeah. death. Maybe even that's referencing Beers himself because he would be a contemporary of Colston. Exactly. But it's it's in it's somewhat mean spirited, you know, that they're still at large, meaning, you know, why haven't these guys killed themselves yet? Right. <laughs> but something about that that I found interesting was that there were a lot of suicide pacts going on at that time in the world. Or at least were being reported on in the examiner. Why why? Was there any explanation to the popularity of suicide pacts? It's nothing that I looked in to in depth, but mm-hmm. um, just reading some background on the story. There had been a lot of ink about it in the Examiner about different suicide packs around the world. In fact, not long after the story came out, the Examiner published a story about something called the Bridgeport Suicide Club, which was in Connecticut. Five members were in the club and only one of them remained. Wow. So they, you know, four of them had successfully offed themselves. I don't know what the deal is with that. I know that Beers was an advocate of suicide. He'd written about the topic in the Examiner saying people should have the right to take their own lives. If they're in pain or, you know, for whatever reason, really, it makes me even think of the repair of reputations that Robert Chambers story, which was written right around this time, too. Sure. Where he he had in the future these suicide booths that people could just run into and kill themselves if they wanted to. So it must have been a matter of public debate at the end of the 19th century. The thing about it that's really tragic is that this story came out on July 14th. As I said, that same month, July 26th, Ambrose Bierce's son Day committed suicide. Wow. He he was depressed over a romantic rejection and yeah. you know we we've talked about Beers's biography before he had a kind of a tragic and strange life but interesting that this story came out and on you know a couple short weeks later his own oh son god killed himself Ugh. yeah it's pretty horrible didn't mean to bring the room down but but it is definitely it's confusing what happens in the end this is yeah. the kind of thing we probably could have used a ken height on to explain <laughs> to us <laughs> but if folks seem to have a better grasp of it than us please yeah, let us know sure. i definitely think the story is worth reading oh yes it's a cool story it's and it's pretty short too it's only like five pages so it's it's not a big investment yeah. in time, but again, I just love the way I love the way Beers spins a yarn. He's just a really good storyteller, and I love his writing. Well, what do you think about his premise here that you really should find the suitable surroundings to read a horror story? I think that any work of fiction or any kind of entertainment is best pursued when you're not distracted by other things, and that you're going to get a much richer enjoyment out of anything that you do if you're focused on it and you're not trying to do five other things at the same time. If you're focused on reading a ghost story and it's a quiet room and you're by yourself and again, I can't, one candle wouldn't do it for me because I would just be like, God, I can't read these words. It's driving me crazy. But you know, in a creepy sort of room. Yeah, that would make it a little bit more scary, I I suppose. But when I read it, it all happens in my mind anyway. So I don't, I kind of able to take my place out of the environment, or at least yeah. I've learned to do it in this modern age. Well, yeah. I mean, I've read some of these Lovecraft stories that we've covered out in the sun in a park or something like that and still really enjoyed them. But I do try to create an environment for myself a little bit when I read stuff for the show, right. if I can. I'll light a couple candles, put some music on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> It's pretty good to do that. I mean, I, I can't think of how many times I've somebody asked me if I liked a movie and I, I said, you know, it might have been good. I don't know. I was in a terrible mood that day. Right. You know, context has a big influence on whether you enjoy something or not. So in order to give a piece of fiction its fair chance, you really probably should carve out. But I think it's more to what you're saying, which is it's a matter of focus. Yeah. Personally, I don't even like the idea of multitasking or doing several things at once. I think it's insanity. Yeah. I don't know why. How that got into the public vocabulary or why people think that's a good idea. Not just in consuming fiction, but in almost any respect in your life. Sure. Like you should do what you're doing while you're doing it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure Lovecraft would agree with you. And he also really loved this story. Mm, he did. What do you have to say about The it? suitable surroundings invokes with singular subtlety yet apparent simplicity a piercing sense of the terror which may reside in the written word. 
And then he goes on to describe what happens in the story. But he thinks that something that one can write down can scare somebody to death, or at least that idea. Yeah, he does. He's very happy about the fact that the manuscript kills him in the story. Love that. <laughs> you know, I was glad to to pick up some beers again. We weren't sure what we wanted to do um, even last week, but this just yeah. you suggested this, and I read it, and I thought this is super appropriate because I have been thinking a little bit lately about how you read these things and. It came up without being prompted in our roundtable. Yeah. Just seems like the right time to be talking about it. And so I thought maybe we'll stick with the theme of surroundings for our next few stories. Oh. Uh, the theme of surroundings in both fiction. And, you know, maybe people can try and be a little more conscious about what they do when they're reading these things. It always surprises me when people talk about listening to the podcast while they're at the gym. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that anybody's listening who's listening. But at the same time, I think Andrew Lehman reading those paragraphs from Fishhead while you're on the treadmill just doesn't seem yeah. to match. Well, I've heard a lot of people uh, listen to us when they go to sleep at night, which is also mm -hmm. really bizarre to me because I, I'd hate to listen to me and you talk as I drift off to sleep. That would be horrible. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's also somewhat backhanded compliment. It's like, oh, my God, I love your show. It puts me to sleep all the time. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but but anyhow, sticking with the theme of surroundings, the rest of this month, here are the stories we're going to cover. Next week, it's a story called The Dead Valley mm -hmm. by Ralph Adams Cram. See, yeah. there's a valley in it. After that, On the River, which is by Guy de Maupassant, doing another Guy. Maupassant story. And then we're going to close out the month with The Tapestried Chamber by Sir Walter Scott. All righty. A valley, a river, and a chamber. Good job, Pfeiffer. I want to thank our sponsors this week. Do not forget to go to the Fedogan and Bremer website. Check out Weirder Shadows Over Innsmouth as well as their whole catalog of books. They're amazing hardcovers. They're great collections of short stories, and they're also great physical objects that you can put into your suitable surroundings. Yeah, they're a great collection. Really good stories. I can't wait to read more stuff by these guys. Outstanding. It's I'm always on the lookout for this type of stuff, and I'm so glad to have them as a sponsor. I'm especially happy that these collections have new writers in them, but they're not all new writers. That there's yeah. also some of these, you know, giants, Neil Gaiman's in one of them. And I mean, you know, it's that kind of thing where, okay, I'm going to get some solid stuff I know. It's a good buy. And then on top of that, I'm going to get introduced to some new authors. So I've been pretty happy with it. And then finally, I want to thank our reader for this week, C.S. Humble. Really appreciate you pitching in. He had more material to work with this week, and I thought he did a great job. Yeah, he's outstanding. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. Podcast. Wow.